Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2014 Mobile Gospel Truth Rally. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. I want to share some things with you. You know, God is an awesome God. He's a good God. He loves us more than any of us understand. I'm, I, I believe that with all of my heart. I've spent 46 years seeking God with my whole heart and learning about the things of God. And the more I learn, the more I realize what I don't know. And I tell you, I just know that God loves me more than I could ever comprehend. Let me start with a passage over here in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to go, I think, to Hebrews. But in Ephesians chapter 3, he's praying a prayer for the Ephesians. And he says in verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Man, there's a lot in that phrase. But I'm not going to preach on it that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints. This isn't just limited to a few people, full-time ministers or somebody. Every born-again saint ought to be able to comprehend with all saints the, what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. That's talking about that there's dimension. You know, you just can't plumb all of the wisdom of God, all of the love of God. It's just beyond our ability to understand it. It's like trying to reach the bottom of the ocean. It's just so deep. I don't know that we could ever figure it out, but it's exciting to try. Amen. But we are supposed to understand all of the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of God. And it goes on to say, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That 19th verse says that you should know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. Now, if it passes knowledge, then how do you know it? It's talking about that you would experience. In the, in the Greek here, there's different words that are used for these things. When we talk about no to most of us, it just means a mental exercise. But in the uh, Greek language, it's actually talking about knowledge by endeavor. It would be closer to what we talk about an on-the-job training or some kind of a skill. You learn a trade or something. And this is saying that you would experience the love of Christ, which passes mere knowledge about the love of Christ. And then it says that if you do that, that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. You can turn that verse around and work from the back back to the front and say that if you aren't filled with all the fullness of God, it's because you don't know experiential the love of God. If you knew how much God loved you, Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 says, faith works by love. Man, that's big. I talk to people all of the time that they are asking God to heal them and they've heard a testimony like Linda or somebody, and they believe that it can happen, but they are in the process of begging God, and the thing that is stopping them is because they don't understand how much God loves them. And did you know that a lot of the stuff that has taught us wrong things and has hindered us from understanding the love of God comes from religion? 
Religion has taught that, oh yeah, God is almighty. God is love, but He only loves those that are lovely. He only loves you when you're worthy. If you haven't lived up to it, if you haven't prayed, if you haven't fasted, if you haven't done these things, God won't give His love to you. That's wrong. And this is basically what religion is teaching people today, that you have to be worthy. You know, I don't really believe that probably this is what, Thursday night? This isn't your nod to God crowd. Some of you people are stark raving mad fanatics. You've driven from other states and stuff. And you know what? You are the fanatics. And you believe that God can do things. If, you know, my son was raised from the dead after being dead for five hours. He was raised from the dead. He was in a morgue, stripped naked on a slab in a cooler. And he sat up. Most of you believe that. And if somebody came up here and fell over dead here tonight, and I said, well, I've seen people raised from the dead. How many of you believe that God can raise this person from the dead? Most of you would be right in there shouting with me. And I said, man, I'm going to pray, and I believe they're going to be raised from the dead. Most of you would agree with me. But you know where I could lose 99% of you? I say, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and pray for them. And there's some of you that would do it. But you know what? A lot of you, you don't have a doubt, one, that God can do it. You might even believe that God will do it through me. But when I say you come up here, all of a sudden your faith turns to fear. Your excitement turns to dread. What happened? It's because you think that you have to be worthy. And you know you better than you know me. If you knew me as well as you know you, you wouldn't have any more faith in my prayers than you got in your prayers. But see, you think that all preachers have got it together and that, man, we must be living holy. But you know you and you don't feel worthy. It's your own heart that condemns you. You don't doubt that God can do it. You doubt His willingness to do it because you don't feel worthy. And that's what's hindering people. You don't understand the love of God. God's love is not conditional upon you. God so loved the world that He gave. He did, you didn't deserve it. God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. I'm telling you what, the truth is you don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. None of us deserve the goodness of God. None of us are worthy of anything. Nobody's got it all together. God's never had anybody qualified working for Him yet. Never. Man, we were out to eat with Dick and Scotty today, and we just had the greatest time just praising God and rejoicing for... And you know what? It's a miracle that the three of us are still alive, much less in ministry. We have done so many dumb things. We have made so many mistakes. There is no reason that we should be here and prospering. The only thing that is common among all of us is not our genius, but you know what? We just love Jesus. We kept holding on to Jesus, and even when we did things wrong, the Lord just comes through and makes you look good. We don't deserve it. Right before my mother died, she asked me, says, would you tell me about what's happening worldwide? And I was telling her all these things. And then she looked at me, you know, as only a mother can do. She was 96 years old. And she looked at me and she says, Andy, you know that's God. 
I said, yes, ma'am, I know that's God. And she stuck her little bony finger right in my face and said, you aren't smart enough to do this. <laughs> and I said, yes, ma'am, I know it. I'm not smart enough to do it. And it's absolutely true. But you know, we get to thinking that God only moves in our life if you deserve it. Man, Brother Dick, Scotty, and myself are living proof that that is not true. Amen. It's not based on our greatness and our goodness. And I tell you, I know Brother Dick and Scotty, I've known them for, I don't know, 30-something years. And the thing that stands out is they love God. They didn't do everything perfect, but they love God. And you know what? If you understand that God loves you, and if you know that God loves you, that is what makes faith come alive. Again, Galatians 5, 6, faith works by love. And if you understood how completely God loves you, you'd never be the same. But you know what gets in the way is a misunderstanding of the old covenant versus the new covenant. Under the old covenant, God punished people and dealt with people according to their sins. Under the new covenant, this book that I was talking about earlier, the war is over. He placed all of his wrath upon Jesus and God is not mad at you. He's not angry. He's not even in a bad mood. God is excited about you. He loves you. All of your sin, past, present, and even sin that you hadn't committed yet has already been forgiven. And God is not holding your sin against you. And there's probably some people right in this room tonight that just right there shut down because we have had it preached so much, Isaiah chapter 59, that my hand isn't short, my arm isn't short, my hand is not weak that it can't save, but it's your sins that have separated between you and your God. And we've heard that preached. And you know what? That is true before Jesus came. But now that Jesus has come, our sins have been placed upon Jesus and we are having all of our sins and failures imputed to Jesus and all of his goodness imputed to us. And there's a difference between the Old Testament man and the New Testament man. And God's not mad at you. God loves you. God loves you more than you love you. God thinks more of you than you think of yourself. Man, that's awesome. Look over here in Hebrews chapter 8. You know, those statements that I've made, I believe them with all of my heart. But when you start trying to explain this, religion gets in the way. And religion comes along. And I guarantee you, I've been kicked off television stations. I've been kicked off radio stations. I've been branded a heretic. You can go on the internet and find thousands of blogs written about me that I'm the most dangerous man in America because I tell people that God loves them instead of God's mad at them. And so religion has just corrupted this. It's as simple as what I've said. And there's no way that I'm going to counter everything here in this little bit of time tonight. But I want to just share some things from the Bible. If you believe the Bible, then the things that I say tonight are going to put you into a position where you're either going to have to change and embrace the goodness of God and believe that Jesus forgave you of all sin or you're going to have to just intentionally harden yourself because I'm going to make it clear enough here that you aren't going to have an excuse. But you know, the sad thing that I found is that most people don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. 
most people, well, I've, I've, been this, I've been in this denomination my whole life. I was born a Methodist. I'm going to die a Methodist or a Baptist or whatever. That's wrong. Man, the Word ought to be the foundation. I'm going to share some things with you from the Word that if you say you believe the Word, then uh, you need to ask yourself some questions here. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. In other words, he's summarizing the first seven chapters of the book of Hebrews. And I tell you, Hebrews is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture. And, it's, and it specifically relates to where the body of Christ is today. The body of Christ is probably as legalistic and as far from the new covenant as the Pharisees of Jesus' day were. And this is a life-changing book, if you get this. But in the first seven chapters, he basically had shown that Jesus superseded the Old Testament and literally disannulled it and took it away and that there was a brand new covenant. Today, the vast majority of Christians are trying to mix the Old Covenant and the New Covenant together and serve God in some mixture of the two. And you can't do that. It's impossible. There's many scriptures that talk about that. So he summarizes it and he talks about some things. Down here in verse 6, it says, But now hath he, speaking of Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much he also, he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Now, if we have a better covenant that's on better promises, then that means that the old covenant is not better. It's not even as good. It's inferior. If you are living by the Old Testament laws and trying to please God, the Old Testament, this is an oversimplification, but the Old Testament basically was saying, you do this, 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 this in order to have God love you. But it really wasn't telling you that you had to do these things. It was to show you. It was to lift the standards so high and make it so impossible for anybody to live up to these standards that it would dawn on you that if that's what you demand, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's what the purpose of the law was, not to get you to keep it, but to raise the standards so high that you'd say, this is impossible. And, and the Lord would say, that's right. You need to receive it by grace. You can't earn it. It's like I heard this story about a man who died and went to heaven. And Peter met him at the pearly gates and says, all right, to get in here, you got to pass the test. And this guy said, no problem. I've been going to church my whole life. I've done all these things. What are your questions? He says, well, you got to make a hundred points. He says, no problem. So he says, okay, first question. He says, did you go to church? He says, I never missed. I had a perfect attendance pin. I never missed. And Peter said, that's worth half a point. And he said, did you pay your tithes? And he says, I paid my tithes every single thing. He says, that's worth half a point. <laughs> then he says, did you love your wife? He said, I was faithful to my wife. I never cheated on her. And he says, that's worth one point. And after about 20 questions, he had five points. <laughs> and he says, man, if this is the way you're doing it, God have mercy on me. And he says, come right on in, amen. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what the point of all of this was. It's for those who are thinking, man, I deserve it and you've got to let me in. God said, all right, let me just ask you how good you are. And after you begin to see that, oh God, if this is what you demand, have mercy on me. He says, come right in. 
The purpose of the law is to drive you to the end of yourself so that you would cry out to God for mercy. And one of the greatest deceptions of the devil is to take the law and make Christians think God gave this to you to help you. The Bible actually says the law, Romans chapter 7, made sin come alive and made you die. The strength of sin is the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse uh, 56. The strength of sin is the law. And on and on we could go. The law wasn't given to break the dominion of sin, but to increase the dominion of sin so that you would see that, oh God, if this is what you demand, I'll never make it. I just have to cry out for mercy. And that's the point of the law is to shut you up unto faith. And so the new covenant isn't about do this and then God will accept you. It's about God just commended his love towards you and that while you were yet a sinner, he died for you. All of your sin has been placed upon Jesus, past, present, and even future. Sin is placed upon Jesus. Will you accept it? And if you accept it, then you have a brand new covenant with the Lord regardless of what your performance is. And again, religion will kick in right here and say, wow, that's encouraging people to go live in sin. No, if you, ever, if you ever got a revelation of how much God loves you, you'll live holier accidentally under grace than you ever lived on purpose under law. Grace does not cause you to go live in sin, but man, you'll love God so much, you'll just give up anything for Him because you love Him so much. You... If you are living in sin, you do not understand the love that God has for you. Because Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it's verse 16, 15 or 16, that the grace or the love of God constrains us. It was the love of God that constrains us. And I tell you what, if you are struggling with sin, you don't know how much God loves you. If you knew how much God loved you, you'd give up bubble gum if you thought it would please Him. Because He is so good. Man, what he did for Linda down here. How do you pay back God for taking away arthritis that has crippled you? How many years was that? 30 years and boom, like that, Jesus takes it away. How do you, how do you pay him back? You can't pay him back, but you know, it makes you want to just love him and serve him and tell everybody about him and stuff. I guarantee you, if you ever, if you ever understand how much God loves you, you will live for him. So he says that it's a better covenant upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, which basically religion is saying it is faultless, it's not. Now over in Rev uh, Romans chapter 7, it says that the law was just and holy and perfect. The law itself wasn't wrong, but the law was perfect and it was given to imperfect people. And the weakness in the law was imperfect people. All of us have sinned. And so the law doesn't ever encourage you. The law never says that if you do nine out of 10 things right, hey, you're doing better. You're nearly there. No, the law would point out the one thing you do wrong out of 10,000 things and condemn you. It'll never give you a compliment. It will never encourage you. All the law was given for is to show you that you have sinned and come short of the glory of God and you need a savior. And that was the purpose of the law. But we were imperfect, and so instead of it producing a positive benefit, all it did was condemn and beat up. It says in Rome, uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 15, the law works wrath. Your sense of fear of wrath and punishment comes from the Old Testament law. 
And that's what this is talking about. If that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. You know, if you are reading, if you, if you can read, if you believe the Bible, this is telling you that there is a new covenant, not like the first covenant. They are not the same thing. They are not compatible. The new covenant isn't an extension and, a, and you know, just the same thing as the old covenant. They are two separate covenants. I'm talking as fast as I can talk. I hadn't got time to turn over all of these things. But when Jesus gave the parable about the new wine being put in new wineskins instead of old wineskins, that was about the law. You can't take this new covenant love and mercy that Jesus taught and put it into the Old Testament wrath and punishment and judgment of God. It'll burst. They are incompatible. The New Testament law and the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament grace and the Old Testament law do not uh, match so it's not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. And all of this is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, I think it is. And this is quoting an Old Testament passage. The Old Testament law prophesied the end of itself and prophesied that there was something better coming. It was never intended to rule. I'm just going to say this and let Scotty solve it when I'm gone. <laughs> I haven't got time to explain it. But over in Romans chapter 3, it says that the law, the things that the law says, it was given to them who are under the law, implying that not everybody's under the law. Did you know the law was given to the Jews? It was never even intended for the Gentile church. And the vast majority of us in here are Gentiles, and we should have never heard the law. We should have never had the law preached to us. Religion should not be teaching the law. It's not even for the Gentiles. We weren't ever supposed to know it. Let Scotty explain that later. That'll <laughs> give you some uh, preaching material, brother. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Some people have interpreted that, that every Jew will be born again. And that's, that's the way they interpret this. This is not talking about that. This is saying that in the new covenant, you don't have to just listen to somebody else tell you about God and establish a relationship based on them. It's like, you know, you don't have to have somebody with their collar turned around backwards to go in and confess to them and have them tell you about God and have a relationship with God through some priest. But in the New Testament, every one of us are kings and priests and God deals with us and we each know God for ourselves. is what this is talking about. People don't have to tell you, you know God. You have a personal relationship with God is what this is saying about. And then in verse 12, you better read this in your own Bible. Mark this or something. You wouldn't believe this is in the Bible if you don't read it in here. And here's the new covenant. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Hallelujah. 
Did you know saying that would get me kicked out of 90 something percent of all churches in the Mobile area? <laughs> to say that God is merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities, he won't remember anymore. The vast majority of churches are saying, God's angry, God's upset, repent or else, turn or burn. <laughs> and they're preaching wrath. You know, some of our students, we got Kelsey here someplace. Where's Kelsey? Right there. She's the one playing the drums. She was down in New Orleans with some of our students ministering, and they had some religious people holding signs up about God hates you, you sinner, and terrible things. And they came out and got mad at them for preaching about the goodness of God and telling people that God loved them. I'm telling you, the Bible belt here, there's, there's good things that come through that. There is a standard of morality that is good, but there's a lot of bad things that come out of it too. The wrath and the punishment. And there are people that think that God is angry at the sinner every day. That's an Old Testament scripture. Now his anger has been paid for and it is taken away and God isn't even mad at the sinner. Somebody said, oh, so you're encouraging sin. No. He loves the sinner, but he loves them so much, he doesn't want them to stay there because that sin is destroying their life. But man, you, it's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says that. And so this says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. This is talking about the Old Testament law. It's ready to vanish away. That was written 2,000 years ago. And the church has kept the Old Testament law in place, applying it to the believer's life, and kept us under guilt and condemnation. I wish I could talk faster or either you would listen longer but I'm going to have to skip some verses. But look in um, chapter 9. And he's contrasting the way it was done under the old covenant with the way it's done under the new covenant. And in verse 11, he says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once Hallelujah. into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Eternal redemption. If words mean anything, he obtained eternal redemption, not momentary redemption till the next time you sin. He obtained eternal redemption. And yet again, the vast majority of church, there's, there's two different ends to this doctrine. It's like a stick. And you know, it, you can have one stick, but there's, there's two ends on it and they're opposite each other. One of the interpretations of this, some people will say, Pentecostals primarily, that if you sin, every time you sin, you lose your salvation and you are headed to hell until you repent and get that sin back under the blood. Thank you for that thunderous silence. <laughs> Some of you are in shock wondering where I'm going. I'm telling you, that's wrong. No, it's wrong. It's 
Scotty's down here saying, that's right. No, it's wrong. <laughs> All right. That's wrong. If I really believe that every time you sin, you lose your salvation until you get it confessed and back under the blood. If I believe that, I'd kill you the moment you got born again. That's the only way you'd ever make it to heaven. <laughs> I might go to hell, but that's the only way you'd ever get to heaven is for somebody to just kill you right then. Somebody saying, oh no, I really live good. You know, the Bible talks about the him that knows to do good and does it not. To him it is sin. So sin isn't only when you break the Ten Commandments or some of these outward things. If you should be doing better and don't do it, you're in sin. Every husband in here should love his wife the way that Christ loves the church and you don't do it. You might do it better than you did, but you don't do it up to the standard of Jesus. So therefore you're sinning. That's, if you fail like you lose your salvation every time you sin, well then if you don't love your wife as Christ loved the church, then you are living in constant sin and you die and go to hell. And the scripture says that a wife is supposed to reverence her husband. If you don't reverence your husband, reverence. Man, I could preach on reverence. <laughs> if you don't reverence your husband the way that the church is supposed to reverence Christ, then you have sinned. And somebody said, well, I don't believe that you'd go to hell for every little sin. This is talking about the big 10. <laughs> the Catholics call it cardinal sins versus other kinds of sins. I'm telling you, sin is sin. If you miss it, you, you missed it. James chapter two, verse 10 says, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. You may not commit adultery, but if you go 56 in a 55 mile an hour speed limit, you know, you broke the law. Somebody, oh, I don't believe God would hold that against you. If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. If you are going to try and be justified in the sight of God because you deserve it and you're living holy, I'm telling you, that's the reason that you aren't seeing the power of God. Amen. It's not because God it doesn't love you and isn't willing to give it. Your own conscience is condemning you. Every person in here is sorry compared to what God intended us to be. At your very best. If you're the best sinner in here, you're still a sinner. <laughs> Who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? I'm telling you, all of us have sinned, come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. You've got to start trusting in the grace of God. And religion is saying, no, you've got to be perfect to earn the grace of God. You've got to be holy. And yet they don't preach it 100%. They preach a relative holiness. And there is no such thing as relative holiness. If you sin in one point, you become guilty of everything. So Jesus paid for all of our sins. He entered in once. So the Pentecostals basically believe every time you sin, you lose your salvation and you have to be born again again. Or they call it your backslid. And if you die in a backslidden state, then you'd go to hell. Even if you've been born again for 40 or 50 years, you, get, you sin and die in a car accident before you have time to confess that sin, you'd go to hell. That's terrible. That's terrible. That is not what this is saying. That is not eternal redemption. This says you get eternal redemption, not momentary redemption till the next time you sin. And then the Baptist 
some of the uh, fundamentalist groups, they don't believe that you lose your salvation, but they believe that you lose your fellowship and all of the benefits and the blessings. God wouldn't heal you. God wouldn't use you with any sin in your life. That's the same stick. It's just an opposite end, a lesser consequence, but it's the exact same thing. I'm telling you, you don't lose your fellowship and God does not cease to use you. And I know many of you just choked on that one, but I'm just telling you. God uses me in spite of who I am, not because of who I am. And those of you who say, I don't believe that, that's the reason you aren't being used is because you are trying to get rid of everything in your life so that God can use you and you're never going to get there. You're on a treadmill going nowhere. You're never going to get any better. You can get to where you don't sin as much to where you love other people more, but you'll never do it perfectly and your own conscience will condemn you. I'm telling you, Jesus bought eternal redemption for us. And then jump down to verse uh, 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Again, eternal inheritance. You know, it wouldn't be eternal life if you lived and then died and then lived and then died and lived and died and you were in and out. That's not eternal life. It's not eternal redemption. If you are redeemed until the next time you sin and then you got to get that sin confessed and under the blood and you became born again again and you're redeemed again and then you have an inheritance but now you sinned and you lost it and then you have to get it back. That's not eternal inheritance. If words mean anything, this kills a huge percentage of religion that is being taught today. And I don't know all the reasons that it's being taught. I think a lot of it's through ignorance, but also some of it is this is how ministers manipulate and control. You've got to come to church. You've got to pay your tithes. You've got to do what I say. If you leave this church, you're a reprobate. You're a heretic. You're backslid. You can't go to heaven. And this is how they manipulate and get people to pay their tithes and to do stuff. I don't know that that's true in every case, but I know that that's some of it. it you feel like I'm going to lose control. These people are going to go out if I tell them that they're free. It's their fear of rejection that keeps them doing the right things. Love is infinitely stronger than fear. Fear is a motivator and fear is a more common motivator. You can tell a lost man, you either pay your tithes or God will take it out in doctor bills. And basically, that's what the church is doing. They aren't preaching God the Father. They're preaching the Godfather. <laughs> it's like Guido. He comes around and he says, boy, there's been a lot of arson in this area. There's a lot of windows that are broken. You know, it's really bad. But if you will pay me every week, I'll make sure that nothing happens to you. Turns out Guido's the one that's breaking all the windows. And you know what that is? That's extortion money. That's the mob. That's the mafia. 
And basically, this is what the church is doing. God won't bless you unless you pay your tithes, unless you come here, unless you do this. God's going to get you. God put you in the hospital and took your tithe from you since you didn't pay it. <laughs> That's the Godfather. That's not God the Father. That's not the right motivation. And this is, and anyway, if you continue to go on through the book of Hebrews, chapter 9 right here, there's five different times. I'm not going to take time to read them all, but you read it. There are five times in this chapter it says Jesus entered in once. Yes. Once. Yes. And made an atonement. Once you obtained eternal redemption. Once you got eternal inheritance. And since we die only once, Jesus died once for all men. And all of our sin has been dealt with. This concept of having to get every sin under the blood every time you sin is a religious concept that violates the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Amen. The book of Hebrews is contrasting the Old Testament law where they offered a sin every time, I mean a sacrifice for sin every time they sinned. And not only did they offer sacrifices for individual sins, but they had a morning sacrifice, an evening sacrifice, and then a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And he's contrasting that with the new covenant. Under the new covenant, Jesus entered in once. He obtained eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. You're forgiven of sins that you haven't even committed yet. Somebody says, how could God forgive a sin before I commit it? You better pray that he can because he only died for your sins 2,000 years ago before you were born. If he can't forgive a sin before you commit it, none of us can get saved. I don't know how he does it, but I'm sure it's honest. Amen. <laughs> so in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? That's a question. If the Old Testament sacrifices could have worked, they couldn't because they were only types and shadows. They were pointing forward, illustrating what God was going to do and someday send the Lamb and shed His blood to forgive us of our sins. So it was an important shadow and type. It was important, but it never could work. If it could have worked, they would have quit offering them, is what it says. If the worshipers once purged, they'd have quit offering the sacrifices. But it says, because the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. No more sin consciousness. Did you know that this is something that most Christians would actually think is ungodly? Most Christians think it's very godly to go around remembering all of your sins and no, I'm so unworthy and God, I don't deserve anything. The scripture says if there was a sacrifice that could have really worked, they would have had no more sin consciousness. And I'm telling you, the sacrifice of Jesus did work and there should be no sin consciousness. You should not be conscious of sin. You shouldn't go around feeling unworthy. You know, there's three or four amens, but I can guarantee you the rest in here, this is nearly blasphemy. Religion is against this. Religion encourages, fosters sin consciousness and feelings of unworthiness and condemnation. 
Man, this is just profound, the things that I'm saying. Let's drop down to verse 10. He talks about Jesus died to put His will into effect. And in verse 10 it says, By the which will you are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You are sanctified. The word sanctified means to set apart or to make holy. You were made holy, sanctified once for all. Most people really struggle with this because they don't have this concept that I call spirit, soul, and body. If you, I, I encourage you to please get that teaching that I've got because most people functionally do not understand this. But I'm telling you, it's not your body that was made perfect, sanctified, and made holy. When people are talking about I'm holy, they're pointing to their actions to the things they're doing outwardly. But true holiness, it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, you were created in righteousness and in true holiness. There is a false holiness. You know what false holiness is? All of this outward stuff, having your hair piled on your head in the bun and wearing no makeup and you're dressed down to the floor. and That's all false holiness. Is that too subtle? Anybody miss what I'm saying? <laughs> Man, I believe that if your barn needs painting, paint it. Amen. And if it needs two coats, give it two coats. Praise God. That's not talking about all that stuff. True holiness is in your spirit. And when the scripture says here that you have been sanctified once for all, most people go look in the mirror and they think this is sanctified. <laughs> they see gray and they see zits and ugly. And they think this can't be holy. It's not talking about your body. And then they search their mind and they think, but man, I got mad. I got jealous. I had wrong thoughts. I had this, I had that. And they think that can't be God. It's not your body and it's not your soul, but your spirit was recreated and you are now righteous and truly holy in your spirit. And that's what this is talking about. Verse 10, look at this again. By the which will you are sanctified, set apart and made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And some people think, well, that's once for all people, but it's not talking about once for all time. Well, I'm glad you said that. Look at the context here. Look at the next verse. It's contrasting. It says, Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, it's making a contrast. In the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices every day over and over and they never took away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. That shows you it's not just one sacrifice for all people for all time, but it's one sacrifice for your sins and my sins forever. Jesus only made one sacrifice for sins forever. He sat down on the right hand of God. The significance of this is that he's not working. He's not standing up and working. He's seated. He says, it's finished. It's over. He's seated. 
Jesus' work is done. He's not saving people today. He saved everybody who will ever get saved 2,000 years ago. He paid for the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, and Jesus isn't saving people. People are just reaching out and taking the salvation that was offered by faith. Romans chapter 5, verse 2 says, we have access into this grace by faith. Grace doesn't save you alone. If it did, every person would be saved because Jesus has paid for the sins of the whole world, but you access God's grace by faith. The word access there is the same word we get admission from. The way you gain admission to, into salvation is by faith. Jesus has already paid for the sins of the whole world, but you have to put faith in what he did to access it and make it become a reality for you. And then in the next verse, in verse 13, from henceforth expecting, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 10 says you were sanctified through the offering of Jesus once for all. And verse 14 says if you were sanctified, you have been made perfect forever. Not until the next time you sin. You are perfect. You're perfect. Your little spirit is perfect. Your head's what the problem is. Our heart's perfect. It's our head that's all messed up. I'm telling you, God loves you more than you realize. He is not mad at you every time you fail. Some of you live in a constant state of being disappointed with yourself. You can't seem to lose weight. You're just fat. And you're always down on yourself. I blew it again. You do something wrong. You lose your temper. You do, and you just constantly live in a state of being dissatisfied with yourself. And you think, if I don't love me, how could God love me? Because God doesn't see you the way you see you. He doesn't look at you in the mirror. He's not dealing with whether or not you got hair on top of your head or not. He doesn't look on the outside. He looks on the heart. And in your heart, if you've been born again, you are as pure and holy and perfect as Jesus is. You were created in righteousness and true holiness. Look over here in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm just going to jump ahead. But in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, you got to remember that this is the same letter it was broken into chapter and verses by people so that we could reference it, but it's just one letter. This isn't a new thought. It's not a new teaching. This is the same writer, the same letter, saying the same things. And in chapter 12, verse 22, he says, But you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. In case you were not tracking with me and thinking about, but man, I'm not perfect. I'm not sanctified and perfected forever. This makes it clear. It's your spirit that was made perfect. It's your spirit. Your body isn't perfect. Your body is going to be changed. We are going to get a new body. It's been purchased, but it's not redeemed. Your body's not redeemed. It's purchased, but it's not redeemed. Your soul has been purchased, but it's not redeemed. 
you're in the process of renewing your soul. You're learning some things. Some of you are hearing some things tonight. It may be the first time you've heard it. And you are in the process of getting your soul renewed, but it is not perfect yet. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13 says, when that which is perfect is come, talking about our glorified body, then we'll know all things, even as also we are known. But now we only know in part and we prophesy in part. You don't know everything with your little peanut brain yet. We don't know everything. So our body and our soul aren't perfect, but your spirit has been made perfect. One third of your salvation is over. Your spirit is as perfect right this moment as it will be a million years from now in eternity because it's His spirit that was sent into your heart crying, Abba, Father. Christ lives in you. And God is a spirit. John 4, 24 says God is a spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is looking at you in the spirit. And if you've been born again, He sees you as pure and holy as Jesus with the same anointing, the same wisdom, the same everything as Jesus is. God is just thrilled with you because He is a spirit and He's looking at you in the spirit. The problem is how can two walk together except they be agreed? We're looking in the flesh. We're wanting to get rid of all of our weight. We're wanting to have everything perfect. We're wanting to act right and do everything right and get to where we think right before we believe that God truly loves us. That's because we look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart and God just thinks you're awesome. God loves you. He's pleased with you. He's as pleased with you as he is with Jesus because it is Jesus. It's the spirit of Jesus living on the inside of you. Somebody said, oh, not me. Well, Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ in you, then you aren't born again. When you get born again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's not true in your physical body. If you were a man before you got saved, you're still a man after you get saved. If you were a woman, you're still a woman. If you're ugly, you're still ugly. <laughs> That doesn't change. And your mind doesn't instantly change either. You still have your thoughts. You have your history. You remember your things. You don't remember what I did. Your soul is still your soul. But in the spirit realm, you are completely brand new. You are a brand new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And the key to the Christian life is learning how to walk in the spirit, who you are in Christ and not in the flesh. The law focuses your attention upon your flesh and points out every blemish, every failing, everything that's wrong with you. But the Word of God, the new covenant, points out what Jesus did and you see yourself in Christ. And you become so thankful for what Jesus has done for you that you wind up serving God more accidentally through grace than you ever did on purpose through the law. You know, there's a lot of people that criticize me and say, boy, you're just encouraging sin. I'm glad that God called me to preach the grace of God because, you know what? It's really hard for you to criticize me that way. I've lived holier than most of you have ever thought of living. I have never, I'll, I'll turn uh, 65, April the 30th, and I have never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. 
in all of my nearly 65 years. Some of you are thinking, coffee. <laughs> I'm not saying coffee and booze are the same thing. You, you got a scripture that says you can drink coffee. Mark 16, 18 says you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you, amen. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm Mr. Righteous. I've lived holier than most of you have ever thought about. You know, I was over in England and I said something about uh, you know, committing adultery. And I said, Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. And I said, it's not just the physical act. It's even the lust. It's the thought. And then I said, you know, I've lusted. And so I'm guilty of adultery, even though I've never physically done it. And afterwards, my staff came to me and they said, have you really lusted? And I said, well, I honestly can't think of a time that I've done it, but I said, I probably have. Amen. <laughs> I can't honestly say that I have, but I just, you know, anyway, my point is <laughs> I've lived holier than most of you have ever thought about living. And so for you to sit there and say, man, you preach grace so that you can go live in sin. You can't say that about me. It's not true. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Grace will cause you to live holier than fear of punishment ever did. And plus, there will be no torment because you don't have any fear. You'll do it out of love instead of out of fear. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, God loves us more than we've ever thought. And religion is a huge, huge, huge hindrance to understanding how much God loves us. I've said things tonight that some of you, I know that this is just like, where in the world did you get this? You've never heard such a thing. And I'm telling you, this is what the new covenant is. And most Christians today do not live under the new covenant. They still have a consciousness of sin that shouldn't even be there. You ought to just be basking in the fact that God Almighty loves you. And many of you won't let Him love you. It says, let God be magnified. Psalms 35, 27, let God be magnified which hath pleasure in the prosperity of His servant. We won't let Him release His love and blessing on us because we don't feel worthy of it. I'm telling you, if you could understand the love of God, which to me... You've got to understand the grace in the new covenant. You've got to quit believing that God doles out His blessings proportional to how you deserve it. And you've got to start receiving it by grace. If you don't understand that, you will never, never start seeing the real power of God. I could just spend lots of time giving you testimonies. The people here from our Bible college, we teach on this and the people that come through, we're just saturated in this. And you ought to see what this does to people. You ought to see how this changes their life. I mean, honestly, I wished every one of you could come and see what's happening. People come in one way and they leave another way because they find out that God's not angry. He loves them. And it changes them. We have this guy, Kurt, that uh, came to school in August or September and he had cancer. Where was In the abdomen somewhere? And they had pictures... Of it. And anyway, he came to school and I prayed for him. Others prayed for him, but he didn't instantly see anything. And he, he got so weak that he couldn't sit through class. And finally at the Thanksgiving uh, time, he had to go home 
uh, for Thanksgiving, and he got so bad he couldn't come back. And he was finally on last stages in December. He was sent home to die. He was put in hospice. He was wearing adult diapers. He was down to, I think it was, does anybody remember how much weight? 130 pounds. And this guy's probably normally 180 or 90 at least. A bodybuilder. And uh, he was down to 130 pounds. He was on his last leg. And anyway, it's a long story. But the goodness of God and the grace of God, he just kept believing. And the guy's now back in school, gained his weight back, perfectly healthy, did not. It wasn't the doctors that cut it out. It's the love of God that just changed him. It was awesome. We've had, I couldn't even tell you the miracles. And it's just because people find out that God loves them. And see, the only thing that Satan ever really had against you was sin. He's not telling you, oh, God can't do miracles. Again, this Thursday night crowd, you're the fanatics. You know God does miracles. It's not that you doubt God's ability. What Satan does is make us doubt God's willingness to use his ability because we don't deserve it. And we have bought the lie that we've got to become worthy. I'm telling you, Jesus died for you while you were yet a sinner and he didn't die for you until the next sin. He died and paid for all of your sin at one time. And the Lord is looking at who you are in the spirit and he loves you. And if you ever get a revelation of that and start dwelling in the love of God, you'll find out that your faith just comes alive. And Satan won't be able to condemn you because he won't come and say, oh, God can't do this because God's God. God can do anything he wants to. He's not made people doubt God's ability. He's making people doubt that God would use his power because you don't deserve it. And once you understand that it's true, you don't deserve it, but you don't get what you deserve. You get what Jesus deserves. And once you understand that, then the devil is just out of ammunition. What's he going to shoot at you? You know, the Bible says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way. So the devil comes and says, man, you sorry thing. What makes you think God would use you? I used to get in and argue with him. Well, I'm doing better. I've prayed more. I fasted. I've been praying in tongues an hour a day. I've... The moment you start trying to justify yourself, you've lost the battle because you aren't going to be perfect and Satan will find something you failed in and then your own conscience will go to condemning you. But the Bible says when your adversary accuses you, it says agree with your adversary. So now I say, you know what? You're right. I don't deserve it. Praise God for Jesus. I think I'll preach about what Jesus did. I think I'll tell them who Jesus is. I'll tell them what Jesus did for them, not what Andrew did for them. And man, I just now stand in what Jesus has done and Satan is out of ammo. The only thing he ever had against me was my unworthiness, and that's no longer a, a factor. God doesn't love me. Use me. Bless me because I deserve it. Man, that's awesome. You know what this is? This is the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God. If the church was preaching this, Man, they'd be knocking holes in the roof to let the sick in here because of the power that would be manifest. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, most of us haven't heard the real gospel. But God loves you, and God wants you to know. You know, let me also say this, that if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which I'm not, I haven't got time tonight to teach on that. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message.
It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.